turn in our catechism to Lord's Day 40, found on page 555 in the backs of your book of praise. What does God require in the sixth commandment? I am not to dishonor, hate, injure, or kill my neighbor by thoughts, words, or gestures, and much less by deeds, whether personally or through another. Rather, I am to put away all desire of revenge. Moreover, I am not to harm or recklessly endanger myself. Therefore, also the government bears the sword to prevent murder. But does this commandment speak only of killing? By forbidding murder, God teaches us that he hates the root of murder, such as envy, hatred, anger, and desire of revenge, and that he regards all these as murder. Is it enough, then, that we do not kill our neighbor in any such way? No. When God condemns envy, hatred, and anger, he commands us to love our neighbor as ourselves, to show patience, peace, gentleness, mercy, and friendliness toward him, to protect him from harm as much as we can, and to do good even to our enemies. Beloved in the Lord, when we speak of death and life in the scriptures, death is not merely physical death, and life is not merely physical life. Death is separation from God and from his life-giving presence. When God tells his people to choose life, he's saying, choose me. Life is to be in community with God and to enjoy his presence along with the presence of our brothers and sisters in Christ. God saves Israel, brings her to life. That word, that word that he's talking about in Deuteronomy, we heard that's near your heart. It's with you. It abides with you. And how much more true in the New Testament where God has sent his spirit to bind us to Jesus Christ and to write those words on our hearts. Choose life. God saves you. He gives you eternal life. He calls you to walk in the way of eternal life, to be a people of life. And like our fathers in the wilderness, to choose life. And as a people who have been given life, we are called to promote life. The most obvious way to do this is to refrain from seeking the destruction of other men. But it's also about actively seeking the good of my neighbor. And that includes obeying and promoting all the other commandments as well. Just as the first commandment, love God, undergirds all the other, the following commandments. So the sixth commandment undergirds the remaining commandments. We promote life by promoting chastity. We promote life by respecting each other's possessions. 
We promote life by truth-telling. And finally, we promote life by always desiring the best for our neighbors. All these things promote a greater communion among the people of God. They make life worth living for all of us. God calls Israel to choose life in Deuteronomy 30. His commandments are all commandments that promote that life. And to depart from his will is to choose death. I bring you the word of the Lord under the theme, promote life. God seeks to promote life among his people by giving them this simple commandment, you shall not murder. And the catechism immediately applies this commandment to all the types of attacks I might make on the good of my neighbor. I might dishonor him. We don't really think a lot about honor and shame in our North American society, partly because we have a very egalitarian approach to the way we treat each other. But even though we don't recognize honor and shame, those are part of our nature. When we mock people for what they cannot help, when we treat those worthy of respect with disrespect, we are dishonoring, we are taking away, as it were, from their life. Why is that? Why is even that level of attacking my neighbor so important? Remember, all people are created by God. All are related to Adam, who is called the Son of God in Scripture. There's a basic value that belongs to all people because they are in the image of God. It's right from Genesis 9. You respect the life of fellow men because they are in the image of God, however distorted that might be. And even more so, fellow Christians. We should treat fellow Christians with honor because they have been restored to the position of sons of God. Our custom of holding men innocent before proven guilty, comes out of this attitude. We must continue to treat people with respect even when they are accused of terrible crimes. Everyone must be treated fairly before a court of law. This has never worked out perfectly, and neither will it ever do so in this age. But the desire comes from a Christian belief that all men have a basic dignity, created in the image of God. And God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. God considers this fallen, broken world worthy of offering salvation. We should treat one another with that basic respect. They can lose that respect but let it be lost by their own actions, not through me seeking to dishonor them. Likewise here, we are warned that we must not hate our neighbor. Here, hate is, is not simply the feeling of hate, but describes an entire attitude. An attitude as if some person that we're directing that hate toward is better off dead. Injury and murder are the willingness to act on that hate. 
is the attitude that treats your neighbor as if it were better off that he did not exist. So hate is not merely a thought toward your neighbor, but it's the way you treat him. Perhaps we ignore him when he is in trouble. We express a wish that he will disappear to our friends. Just like the side of dishonoring a person, we do not value our neighbor. It's kind of like we sometimes say, love is not just a feeling, it's also an action, a duty. And hate, hatred takes the same form. Next, the Catechism warns about injury. We become a little more extreme when we talk about injuring our neighbor. We do not only dishonor or hate him now, but we actively seek his injury. We're seeking to hurt him, whether emotionally or financially or even physically. We try to destroy his reputation. Or in a fit of anger, we verbally or physically attack him. And of course, it's not hard to see how the desire to injure our neighbor can quickly turn into a desire to get rid of our neighbor completely. These acts of murder, they begin with thoughts, words, and gestures. We begin to hate our brother. We speak words of hate and we show our hatred in how we treat him or her. And if those attitudes are evil, then how much more acting upon those attitudes? We can add to the words of the Catechism here that this hatred comes in two different ways. Through quick impulses of rage and through long, slow planning. Both of those need to be guarded against. Long, slow planning being worse than quick fits of rage because of the type of attitude that one needs to develop in order to plan out the murder of another human being. There needs to be a deep bitterness or a deep pride behind that. The only way to remove either attitude is to consistently seek the good of my neighbor. And I don't naturally do that. I need Christ in doing that. I need the life of Christ so that I can promote the life of my neighbor. The Catechism also warns against endangering myself. And this is important too. I too am made in the image of God. As a Christian, I am being remade through Jesus Christ. And that means I am called to a certain degree of self-regard or self-respect. I'm not to be selfish or self-centered. I must recognize my corruption I must hate myself in in the sense that I hate my old self, the death-seeking self. I'm called to honesty about myself. Ultimately, it's best to put it the way Jesus put it. I must love others as I do myself. I respect others as God's creatures, and I respect myself as God's creature. 
Interestingly, psychologists note that those who don't care about others often have a certain degree of self-hatred as well. They might be very self-centered or selfish, but they don't have a proper regard for themselves. They don't care about themselves. As the Proverbs say, they love death. They're choosing the way of death. As Christians, we ought to evaluate ourselves in the way that Jesus evaluates us. Sinful, yes, but also as creatures that are so treasured that he laid his life down for us. And that affects the way we treat ourselves as well. As the Catechism opens, I am not my own, but belong both body and soul to my faithful Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. I'm going to, if I belong to Jesus, then I'm, that means I need to treat myself in a way that promotes life. And finally, in this, in this first question of the catechism, we have a line that points back to the fifth commandment. God wants to promote life, and that is why he has established the civil magistrate. Now, the civil magistrate's job, so to speak, is much narrower than all the promoting life we have been talking about. They are called to promote life in one specific way by bearing God's sword of vengeance. The civil magistrate promotes life by taking vengeance against men who are violent. We read from Genesis 9, where the basic teaching is that he who sheds the blood of a man should also have his blood shed. This assumes that God has given mankind as a whole the right to exercise this type of an authority. It is an authority given by God because ultimately, ultimately, only God has the right to decide over our life and death. As we've heard, we're in the made in the image of God. So only God has the right to decide over life and death. And only God may establish a law that allows another man to take another man's life. Vengeance is mine, says the Lord. And the civil magistrate is appointed by God as a steward of this right. This is not what we popularly think of as the right to life, but rather the right to not be killed. The rejection of capital punishment in our land today is, is a rejection of this God-given authority. And neither did Christ abolish this authority, for Paul appeals to the fact that the civil magistrate bears the sword. They use that sword to punish the wicked and defend the righteous. This is the authority God has given to the civil government to promote life. But today we often prefer our own way of thinking about authority. 
If you read God's litany of wrongs against various nations in books like Isaiah, Ezekiel, and particularly a book like Nahum, God calls out the nations not so much for idolatry, but especially for their cruelty. They have failed to exercise their role as the sword of God's vengeance. Rather, they have become the violent men that God called them to bear the sword against. Or, they have allowed violent men to seize control within their kingdom. We see that in our own day, how our leaders do not fulfill their God-given task in that they continue to permit the slaughter of unborn babies. The, the first part of promoting life is to simply stand against what the Bible calls violent men. This dovetails nicely into one of the other exceptions we often give to this commandment. We may defend ourselves. Again, this is a promotion of life. We desire that all may defend themselves. We may also defend our families, another way we promote life. And finally, we may defend our country and possibly another country. Again, we do this to promote the good of our neighbor and to protect against violent men. For the sake of completeness, it's good to mention one more exceptional circumstance, and that would be the example of Israel's holy war in Scripture. Here, Israel was the instrument of God's judgment on the people of Canaan. This can only be done by the direct command of God. With the coming of Christ, this type of holy war is no longer necessary, as through the cross it's transformed into spiritual warfare. So we guard against violent men. God gives us that right. But we are also on guard against becoming violent men. And that's where the catechism draws us in the second question and answer here. The catechism draws out a number of attitudes that work within us to draw us toward the violence of murder. What the catechism calls the root of murder. And the catechism here is not exhaustive, only giving a couple of the most prominent examples. Remember that by nature, right at the beginning of the catechism, we learn that by nature we hate God and our neighbor. One goes against the first half of the commandments, the second goes against the second half of the commandments. We will often use any excuse to destroy a neighbor who gets in our way. We can be drawn to murder through envy. We desire what other people have and use our power to destroy their ability to have it. This can be deeply destructive to working together in society, in school, and in the church. I don't like it that this person gets all the attention for his talents, so I will use what I can to make sure he gets no more special attention than I do. There's no ability 
to thank God for what for the gifts he has given to somebody else. Appeals to equality can be driven by envy. We call on everybody to be treated fairly so that one person will never get one inch more than I do. Envy affects everything. Pride isn't mentioned, but it's helpful to mention it here because it's kind of the opposite of envy. Pride says everybody must look at me and who cares about anybody else in the room. It's all about me. I am the best and the most important. And that can also cause murderous thoughts when somebody else begins to look better or more important than you do. Anger is mentioned here as well. This happens, this happens more when somebody crosses us. We're not necessarily comparing ourselves to anybody. We're not making ourselves more important than we ought to. But somebody steps into our life in a way that changes what we are comfortable with or forces us to accept something we don't like. We respond with anger. And of course, anger can come out of envy or pride as well. And again, that leads to hatred and murder. Finally, we have the desire for revenge. It's not the same as exercising vengeance. It is the desire for revenge. God calls the civil magistrate to a sober-minded weighing of the merits of each case. A desire for vengeance clouds our understanding of what God desires. This often happens in the cases of mob justice. There's a collective desire for vengeance. But of course, as individuals, we see this as well. When we're wronged, we want to get back at that other person. These commands are all hard, but this is probably the hardest. To put away a desire for vengeance when somebody causes me deliberate harm. That's what so many of the Psalms are about. Lord, you take up the exercise of vengeance. I'm not being treated fairly, but I trust that you will make things right. This is out of my hands. It all begins as children. A toddler who grows angry over losing his toy is, is working out of pride or envy. Siblings, when you, when you fight together, doesn't that come out of your need to assert your rights? Whether real or imagined, that thing we call high school drama, he's envious of his friend who is dating this girl. That brings an end to their relationship, between the relationship between the two friends. Somebody is more athletic or smarter than me, I hate him for that. And of course, that high school drama, drama continues well into adulthood. Adults are just better at hiding it. All of these attitudes, says the catechism, are murder. 
We recognize that our hearts are desperately wicked. We're born with a sword in our heart. It's easy to see how these feelings affect so much of what we do in life. Remember in all this who you are. Jesus promises that those who believe in his name will receive life. That life is at war with the death that is still in our natures. But Jesus promises that that life is powerful and will be triumphant. The way of Jesus is putting to death, putting to death that envy, that hatred, that anger, and the desire for revenge. So that we may have God's perspective on life. Further, we have a life in Christ that cannot be taken away from us. And that enables us to put away these things. So often, especially in this matter, so often these things can feel like we're the ones being forced to die. Right? If, I, if I put away my desire for vengeance, that means the other person wins. But no, that's not true. Because I have my life in Christ. Who cares if somebody is better than me when I have all I need in Christ? Who cares if somebody crosses me when I have all I need in Christ? Even when somebody deliberately attacks me, I can, by the strength of the Spirit, put away the desire for revenge and know that Christ, Christ will give me the vengeance I deserve. Perhaps that person's sins against me will be punished in the cross of Christ. Perhaps that person's sins will be punished eternally in hell. But I can trust that those sins against me will be paid for. That can give me the presence of mind to truly promote life in all that I do. Think of who God is and what it means that he's our creator. Out of his free goodness, he filled his creation with abundant life. We especially see that now that it is, it is spring. We go outside, particularly in the countryside, and we can see that everything is budding and growing. The flowers are coming out. That's a picture that teaches us about the abundant life that God wants to give. Psalm 104 beautifully describes this. We see in, in, in that psalm the Spirit bringing water down to earth and reviving the desert. In, that case, in our case, we see that every year with the winter where everything dies or hibernates and with the coming spring where everything comes alive. In the same way, God is the one to bring spiritual life to the spiritually dead so that the man who loves only himself can put on peace, quietness, and gentleness. And that's where the last question of the catechism is going to go. Is going to bring out the way in which I, like my God, 
can promote life. Obeying this commandment is not merely about preserving the biological life of my neighbor. If I'm going to put away envy, hatred, and anger, I have to have an active love for my neighbor. I'm going to love him as myself. I'm going to do as I would have him do to me. I do that through peace, patience, gentleness. As Paul says, as much as possible, seek to be at peace with all men. We desire to demonstrate in our own life the good of life, the goodness of life, especially in Christ. It's important for Christians to develop an attitude of friendliness toward one another, toward my neighbor. Showing kindness promotes relationships Our relationships, our friendships promote a lively society. This goes to the point where I am willing to protect my neighbor from harm. I'm willing to defend his life against violent men. And I'm also willing to warn him out of love, out of a desire for his spiritual life regarding the bad patterns In his life, I show myself a friend. Then the hardest part of all, I am called to do good to even my enemies. I am called to do good to those who are seeking me harm, whether real or perceived. I am able to sacrifice my own interests for the sake of my neighbor, willingly showing mercy when he or she is in need. I'm willing to lay down my life for my neighbor. Think of Paul's words in Romans 5. Our Lord willingly died for his enemies. He died for us while we were still sinners. If we seek friendship with our neighbors as the catechism recommends, they will cross us. And this, it doesn't matter if they're Christian or non-Christian. They will cross us. They may even hurt us. But if we find our life in Christ, we can stand against the envy, the anger, and the pride that surge up inside us. In Christ, we can put aside our rights, again, real or perceived. We die in many little ways for one another. We die by allowing Christ's death to cover the sins of our friends and family against us. Christ extends that willingness to die even to our enemies. When Christians die for the sake of the name of Christ, God uses that to bring men to belief in his name. We may even, like Christ, put aside our own rights for the sake of our neighbor. I always think of the story of the five missionaries who went to the Huarani people of Ecuador, including Nate Saint and Jim Elliott, if you remember those names. When they were attacked by the people there, they chose not to defend themselves. 
And God used that for the later conversion of many of their murderers. In the same way, God has used martyrs all through the history of the church to demonstrate his desire that their murderers live, that their murderers can have their sin paid for on the cross of Christ. When God's people consciously choose to die, whether literally or by giving up some part of themselves, when God's people consciously choose to die for the sake of the gospel, God uses that for promoting the true and good life of Jesus Christ. Do we desire good for those we perceive as enemies of freedom? Do we put away our desire for revenge and rely on God's justice to become manifest in time? By their willingness to submit to injustice, by their willingness to set aside their rights, Christians can promote life. I hope as we seek to live according to God's word, and as we encourage one another in that, the goal behind all our encouragement is a desire to find a greater abundance of the life-giving blessing that we find in God. We do not murder just because God tells us not to, but because we have a desire not only for mere biological life in him, but lives of flourishing and abundance, the eternal life that God has given to us. We should be a people that seek abundant life according to God's standards, not the world's standards. We should also be filled with a deep desire to promote the flourishing of my neighbor, so that instead of my natural inclination to hate my neighbor, I may desire his good. So with all these commandments, remember that God has given us his spirit of life to strengthen us, to renew us in this desire. All glory be to God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. Amen. Let's sing in response from Psalm 139, Psalm 139, 10, 11, and 13.